Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. On Thursday, the 25th anniversary of Super League gets underway when Wigan play Warrington. So to mark the occasion, I thought it would be interesting to look back at the past 25 years and discuss the balance sheet of Super League. After all, the Super League era now accounts for fully one-fifth of the history of rugby league since 1895. And there's no better person to assess those 25 years than Sean Maguire, who was chief executive of St Helens during some of Super League's most crucial years in the 2000s and who was also one of rugby league's expansionist pioneers in London in the 1980s. We spoke down a very crackly line about the lessons and the legacy of Super League. Uh, Well, let's start at the beginning. What was your response to the announcement of the creation of Super League uh, way back in April 1995? I think, probably like most people, uh, one of astonishment, because there didn't seem to be any long build-up to the announcement, as I remember. Um, And it was uh, quite a feature, wasn't it, on national news that suddenly Rupert Murdoch, this... Great media figure from uh, Australia has essentially bought rugby league in England and is giving the game £87 million. I think that was the figure. And I think people were just astonished. It is, isn't, it, it, in other words, I don't think it was something that was prefaced by a long build up of you know, agonised negotiations and proposals about changing the game. It came, I think, as a bolt from the blue. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that because obviously it was motivated uh, by what was going on in Australia, because that's where the that's where the real Super League was, wars, the, yeah, the Super League war in Australia when uh, News Limited went to war with Kerry Packer's uh, organisation. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is quite interesting about it is that if you go back, there's obviously signs that something was going on, and it but it took the Australians, uh, it took the Australian scenario to to push it over the edge because. There was the discussions about switching to summer that had been going yes. on since the late 80s. Uh, and Gary Edrington, I think, was probably the most prominent person uh, in favour of summer. And there'd also been a um, a gradual concentration of power in the hands of the leading clubs uh, since the 70s. Because do you remember in the seven, at some point in the 70s, in the, maybe 76, 77, the league stopped its um, gate-sharing arrangements? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, whereby the away team would get a third of the of the gate at any matches, and the top clubs started to complain that well, why should you know, someone like Dewsbury get a third of the gate when they're playing at Central Park because they obviously don't bring a third of the spectators? And I think those type of that idea that you know more and more power should be concentrated amongst, amongst the big clubs have been slowly building. And, and I think it that... was yeah, go on. No, so I was going to say, Tony, I think that that is, is part of the background of the kind of commercial commercial impulse, as it were, to the creation of the Super League competition. I think if you look back and read what was said by perhaps the most prominent person in the whole drama, Morris Lindsay, it was that we've got to drag the game into the future. I think metaphors like that were actually used in his many uh, reported remarks about this change. Because as I understand it, one of the things that really just characterised that moment when Super League was founded was the speed of action. I mean, you know the story from getting calls yeah. from Murdoch to calling back to validating that it's a real proposal to calling some emergency meeting of what club chairman on a sort of Saturday morning and basically saying to them, this is the offer, take it or leave it. So I think there was a yeah. great, I don't think it was terribly clearly thought through on that long, long form basis because of years of, 
you know, pre-existing conversations. I agree about Gary and the the debate. I think it had been debated at the Rugby League Council several times, hadn't it, before Super League, about the move to summer and one or two other matters of that kind. But this was a revolutionary change. Yeah, that's right. And I think, although you could see some of the signs were in the wind, basically, English Rugby League had a gun pointed at its head by yeah. Murdoch and it, it had very little choice. And of course, then... The most bizarre and ridiculous thing was the proposal to that Super League would start with merged clubs. That um, well, <laughs> there'd be the team from Calder, there'd be the team from Hull, that's right. There'd be the Manchester team and yeah, South Yorkshire and che- yeah, Cheshire as well, wasn't it? Warrington, Cheshire, and Widnes, so. Warrington and Widnes. I mean, these were. It just shows you that the fruits of some of this were simply absurd. Uh, I mean, don't forget in the first season of the Super League competition, clubs like Workington Town. People have forgotten yeah. that. Oldham Burrs, Paris Saint-Germain, Sheffield Eagles, Halifax. Uh, yeah. the, I think the only first-class clubs that were in the first season who are still in Super League, uh, there are about five or six of them, Saints, Warrington, yeah. Wigan, Leeds and Cass. I think that's it. That's right. All the others yeah. either don't exist in the thought like Bradford, something we'll talk, the demise of some great clubs in this Super League era, or like PSG, they no longer exist, or like Workington and Sheffield and Oldham, they're lingering a bit further down the league structure. Well, and, and I that, think the, other, the first season. The other, yeah, I mean, and the other example of how um, quickly and badly thought out the Super League, that initial uh, season the Super League was, was, and you might say, I would say this because I'm from Hull, there's no club from Hull. Yes. Let alone, I mean, it's obviously ridiculous to imagine that um, uh, Hull and Rovers are going to merge. Uh, but the fact there's no team from Hull in that first season of Super League stands out like a sore thumb. It shows that they, it was so ill thought out that they'd completely missed out one of the game's traditional heartlands. And because I think the reason for that is the dazzling prospect of getting 87 million quid into rugby league in the 1990s. I mean, I think that those numbers would have... I don't know what the total revenues of all clubs would have been in that year or for the previous 10 years or 20 years, Tony. It would be nothing like 87 million quid. And it was just too spectacularly good an offer for those guys at that time, I think, to even contemplate turning down. And so, as you say, because of its its dramatic speed, its suddenness, consequences just weren't thought through. I mean, no whole team. But we fast-tracked London Broncos and Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah. There's one story well, that I've heard, which, which sounds true from, from that meeting, was that when, um, uh, when Maurice Lindsay announced to the gathering of uh, the club, all the club chairmen, I think there's all 30 professional, semi-professional clubs at the meeting, um, there was a great groundswell of opinion that they should just accept the first offer because we've never been offered <laughs> so much money in our lives. Never. Uh, but no. Maurice Lindsay had the sense that, you never accept the first offer. Absolutely. And held out. I can't remember what the original offer was. Um, and I think, but it was Morris who held out for the for eighty-seven million because otherwise, I think it might have been seventy-eight. The, it was seventy-eight. A, I think it grand, was seventy-eight. Yeah, that's right. So it kind of demonstrates the business naivety or the greed or both of of some clubs that they thought <laughs> we'll just take the money. Well, I think um, it demonstrates. If if you think about the structure of the game, and I think it's a terribly important point about looking at the whole sweep of what Super League has meant to the game in the last quarter of a century is, of course, the the people who were running most clubs in those days, Tony, were were never described, for example, as owners as they are now. No. Quite a pernicious development, in my view, for reasons we can discuss later. But um, they were, I think, very often, whatever you think about them individually or collectively, 
they were usually, I think, a group of people who saw themselves as stewards of a sort of tradition. Um, yeah. Who who were and and get you know you only got on the board if you're a very well regarded local person, usually a man I know, probably involved in some business or been a prominent school teacher or civic personality of some kind. But they were pretty they were pretty stable guys, I think, in the way they looked at the game and within the confines that they saw then. But they had very little business experience. And Morris was streets ahead because of his own career in business. And don't forget, he'd been a very successful on course bookie. He could weigh up the odds very quickly. He knew how to negotiate and he had some vision. Um, and I think they were just then dazzled by it. And as you say, how could that meeting have proceeded without anyone saying, hang on, there's no club from Hull? Yeah. Hull must represent at least 10% of the total supporter base of rugby league, probably more. How could you not have a club from Hull? Yeah, it's as absurd as not having Wigan or Saints in. I mean, well, I if you th- the other thing that's. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to, one other thing, Tony, sorry to interrupt, is that, of course, um, someone who's now come back into Rugby League as the man to run Super League was originally, I think, as I remember, in charge of Paris Saint-Germain, was sent there by Maurice Robert Elstone. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting turn of the wheel. Robert joined as one of Maurice's, uh, I don't know, um, in the best possible sense, fix-it guys who who were sent out to do particular jobs. Uh, to keep to keep the show on the road. The other thing I was going to mention that is often forgot nowadays is that really the the proposals to merge clubs were stopped in its tracks by supporters. Yes, and I think because there was in virtually every town where a club was uh, where it was proposed that clubs should merge, there were demonstrations, campaigns, petitions by supporters, and in a sense it showed the the depth of feeling that communities had about the game and that. But if it hadn't been for public opinion being mobilised and people voting with the feet, then um, it simply could have been a. It could have failed at, failed at the first hurdle because who would want to watch a team from Calder, Calderdale, Humberside, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah or, or Cheshire, Cheshire. Cheshire United, or what? But I think the thing that that really reinforces this idea that uh, I think we started with that this was such a bolt from the blue. And the timelines were so short and the change so great that the kind of strategic thinking that you would hope would accompany something like an £87 million investment back then, 25 years ago, just didn't exist. And I think the other thing that it tended to do was amongst that very passionate supporter base in those places who had the street protests and the demos, etc., was a belief that the people running the game uh, had a view of... Uh, the strengths of the game that wasn't aligned with the reality that those supporters felt. And I think that weakened a kind of belief in the leadership of the game strategically to some extent that I don't think has ever gone away. You know, how could anyone propose that Witness and Warrington merge who knew anything about rugby league or Hull and Hull KR? I mean, you, it, yeah. it's absurd. It's absolutely well, absurd. It, it reminds me of a, it's probably apocryphal, but I, I was once told the story when about a couple of years after Super League had been been formed that um, Morris and a previous chief executive of the Rugby League were um, were travelling through were travelling through Bradford on the way to some uh, some do players benefit do or something like that, and he got lost and stopped. Uh, in, down one street to ask directions. Uh, so the window was wound down and said, well, we're, we're trying to find so-and-so, where is it? And the woman uh, who put her head 
who they'd stopped to ask the directions, put her head into the car, saw Maurice Lindsay and said, you've ruined our bloody game. I'm not telling you where to go. <laughs> so she probably did tell him where to go in a more metaphorical well, that's way. Probably, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm probably being polite. Um, so it, it, and, and that uh, that sense lasted and still exists today, uh, if you go to Keithley or Featherston, uh, about the, the a, a kind of real undermining of the um, of any acceptance of the authority uh, well, of the RFL. Look at what Morris said. So Morris was there at the beginning, and he was the leading personality, Tony. Then I think by some long way. Um, I think about a year ago, when Robert Elstone was appointed as the new supremo of the Super League competition. I think that, Lin- that Maurice Lindsay made some pretty scathing remarks about the way that the, that the structure under Elstone was going to work because it, it brought back the arguments really of quarter of a century ago. The problem with the management of the game is that the individual clubs, chairman and other senior people in the individual clubs are on the Super League board and you're simply replicating what happened 25 years ago. There, there, are, there are these inherent conflicts of interest. So it's very difficult for someone to step back sort of strategically and say, look, this is what we need to do, even if in your in the short term you don't think it meets your individual club interest, but it's for the greater good of the whole game and you'll get stronger and better as a result of it. It's impossible to do that. And, yeah, and I, I think that it's looking back on his involvement, you know, what really has changed then in there seem to be some changes in the leadership and the strategy and people are talking more fluently in a kind of business speak. But really, what has changed? And how deep are those changes? Yeah, I, and I how many of them have come thing. after the initial fireburst of you know these these clubs being fast tracked into the game, going to summertime, um, the salary cap, licensing, the broadcasting deal. You know, there's a lot to talk about. In, and as you say, uh, 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 writing up a fair balance sheet of what have 25 years of Super League brought to the game of rugby league in England. Yeah, um, before before you get onto that, I think the one final point I'd, I'd, I'd make about the, the the birth of Super League is the impact that it had on the world outside of rugby league. Because I always remember a couple of days after the announcement, I was in London for something, and I was um, in a pub as often am in London, and there was a, a bunch of city types behind me, uh, obviously not from the north or anything like that, talking about rugby league, talking about yeah. Super League. And they were saying, well, what's going to happen now? Rugby has got all this money. It's always been a game that's never been capitalised properly. Perhaps this is, you know, perhaps it's going to it's take moment. from Rugby Union. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a real sense of that. And if you look back at the papers at the time, there's all this stuff like, is in England's Martin, England Rugby Union's Martin Johnson going to sign for Super League? Now, yes. It's difficult to think of a more inappropriately, inappropriate <laughs> player, um, given his size and immobility. Uh, to, to play rugby league, but that was the sense of the times, and you so you got that on one sense, and it, you, you you did get a feeling that if it had been handled in a different way, perhaps there was a real potential to make a, a big breakthrough, a a, uh, a sport changing breakthrough. But on the other hand, of course, you got a lot of people in the press saying, "Why is rugby league uh, accepting all this money? Doesn't it know its place in the north of England? We like it. We like it because it's all about Eddie wearing." And yeah, and it's very warm it's and northern and cosy. And, and mode. Yeah. Coronation Street place? with shorts on, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so there was that uh, that juxtaposition of kind of two, two attitudes. Well, wait a minute, maybe something serious is going to happen. 
And then the other one sort of saying, well, these Northern Ikes are getting ideas above their station. They should go back to uh, muddy Saturday afternoons on Grandstand. So from what you've said, one of the questions that, cut, that, that emerges from that is, why didn't that revolution happen? Why didn't the, the, what those city boys were speculating about come to pass? Yeah, what stopped that? Interesting I, I question, isn't it? That's a lot yeah, of questions in there. There's a, there's a ton of questions in it. Well, I mean, let's go back to what you were talking about first. I mean, in terms of difference in, in crowds, because obviously that was the big, one of the major promises of Super League, that attendance, attendances would increase. Um, and I think that's happened. I was just looking at stats before, uh, before yeah, I started speaking. Yeah, that's true. And um, Super League attendances last year, 1.436 million. Uh, uh, with an average of eight eight thousand uh, average match tends at eight thousand four hundred forty one. Go back to the last last full season before Super League nine, eight, uh, nineteen ninety four to ninety five. Division one aggregate attendances one point three three million, but the average attendance was five thousand five hundred forty three. So it's an increase of I don't know about fifty percent in terms of yeah. average. But the because they played a lot more games and they were playing a sixteen teams in the first division they played thirty games. So there's been some growth, but then on the other hand, and I don't want to, comparisons are always invidious, invidious so I don't want to uh, make too much of this. The growth in Rebunion's crowds at the Premiership level, um, 1997 to 8 season, uh, I don't have any figures, I couldn't find figures earlier than that, 823,000 aggregate attendance, average 6,238. Go today, uh, aggregate attendance 1.95 million average uh, match attendance 14,500 which well, tells, it, it tells part of the story I mean obviously I think Rugby Union because it was so when it was amateur uh, it had very inferior stadiums there wasn't much attention paid to match day attendances so it, it had it had more to make up and the clubs hadn't um, been developed as brands in a way Tony in the way right. they managed so to do that Wasp yeah, being so a very not, good example. Uh, precisely, yeah. Uh, or Sar- uh, Saracens, who were watched. Well, by, perhaps the less uh, said about Saracens, the best. Salary cap, but there you go. Um, um, but I think one of, one of the other things about those stats is that um, those improvements in crowds, of course, have not been uniform, which I think is one yeah. of the real problems. And um, I talked to someone last year. I've got a note of it somewhere, an email to just uh, saying to them that what one of the one of one of the intrinsic problems with this with the, the crowds and attendance is that there's something in the culture of the game that if a team starts to play badly relative to the performance of others just has a bad season you know the story a run of half a dozen yeah, yeah. losses and all that there's something in the culture of a lot of speckies your club and mine who will say i'm not watching them again they're useless i'm going home bloody not worth my season ticket and crowds can start to fall you can see the the reduction in average attendances, but yeah. the, 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 and and unfortunately, the opposite effect of that doesn't always work. So it would be interesting to see what Salford's average attendance starts to get in this season, having gloriously got to the grand final and had a tremendous year last year. Will will the opposite effect be of benefit to them because they're playing very well and they've had a strong squad, an exceptional young coach, etc. That the crowds will start to surge upwards. That's part of the problem because I think that. Um, I'm pretty right, sir. I think Wigan's crowd has slightly gone down. Saints is about stable, I think, over about the last 10 or 12 years, around the ten to 11,000 mark. Um, I don't know about... Uh, I think 
your attendances at, at, at Hull KR, broadly speaking, on average, about 8,000, something about like that. About 8,000, which is pretty good given the fact that every season we're on the verge of relegation. Um, it's a, because it's a real rugby league club in East Hull with all those other, you know, it's 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 an intrinsic part of the place. But yeah. that, that, that crowd problem is very interesting because one of the one of the other debates that went on if you remember in the early days of Super League with the Sky broadcast is that it's great to have these games professionally broadcast with many more cameras than the BBC used and Eddie uh, Hemmings and Steve-O and the guests and jazzing it up and everything but actually the problem is people can sit at home and watch the match and not go to the game Yeah, I think think you're right as well there's a cultural issue within Rugby League that people are uh, fiercely critical and it's very easy to annoy people and um, for them to say, right, I'm not going again. And they don't go, for, I mean, they do go again, but they, they, they'll miss a, a big chunk of the season or a season because something's annoyed them. Um, and I don't think you, you certainly don't get that in rugby union. Right? It doesn't really have that, that type of culture. People don't have and the it, same critical judgment. No, they don't. Because it, it's got no. a different purpose to some extent. I think this That's is a right, really yeah. deep, deep issue in it. And one of the other things that I thought would be is an important part of all this is that. I think Maurice Lindsay, when the uh, Super League was founded, talked about the need for Rugby League to have to be more vigorous in pursuing its place in the kind of sporting marketplace. It's getting more crowded. We know what's happened to association football then. It's this unmatchable behemoth of just vast revenues and global interest and an obsessive kind of national event every week you know every every sunday is super sunday on sky isn't it with you know the kind of the deluge of media coverage you can't escape it how do yeah. we elbow our way into this rugby union's got stronger i think there's no doubt about that no point in fighting it some of the club games have got a lot better the international season they've got is already being pumped up on the telly like you wouldn't believe for the six nations we, we all even the scandals don't seem to sort of knock it you know bloodgate didn't knock it which was a shocking event if you remember that a few years ago yeah industrial scale of cheating yeah industrial scale of cheating is only really fully emerging that the, the trickery that was involved in that but and if a similar thing had happened in rugby league tony i think it would have been a catastrophe but well, it's part of it yeah i mean it's part of this because rugby union has successfully become part of daily so, sporting soap opera absolutely so it doesn't re- it doesn't really matter because it's it's something everybody talks about now just in the same way well not quite the same way, but in a similar way to soccer so well, it's, today, the, it's become part of the entertainment industry, which really hasn't. But it's become a kind of um, fully-fledged member of the entertainment industry, if you see what I mean. And I think we are not. Yeah. And one of the things, just to, you know, uh, it was the impetus, essentially, I think, behind the vision of the people who did lead us into Super League, is that we would become full members of that elite group of British sports. And one of the problems is that... Um, you can only do that with, I think, this this concept of, of almost like portable brands. So we talked earlier about the protests in towns like Halifax and Witness at the prospect of their clubs being compelled to merge. But it doesn't mean that when they didn't merge, the clubs became stronger because this 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 local enthusiasm could manifest itself in growing and bigger crowds because of intrinsic economic and other problems in those towns. And I think that... We, our attempts to sort of elbow our way to the top table um, to get the big books, to get the big sponsors, to get the big media deals, to get the kind of daily presence in the national sporting consciousness remains as big a problem in 2020 as it did in 1996. I don't think that's changed. 
So I don't think no, Super League's achieved fact, that ambition. I, I don't think that's it's achieved some no, other. I, think, I don't want to knock it all, but that ambition hasn't been achieved. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And in, in many ways, not through um, anything that the game has done. I think its profile has declined, and I think partly because attitudes towards sport have changed, and in a sense, the kind of dismissal and marginalisation of things that go on in the north has, has contributed to that. And has compounded see, that. Yeah, even the BBC moving to Salford has made not uh, not an iota of difference in the, the coverage that Rugby League gets outside of its own programmes on the BBC. I think um, a lot of people thought that would be a, 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 a as big a benefit almost as Prince Harry uh, launching the recent World Cup, yeah. that we could ride in on the back of something else in a way. So in other words... Uh, I read some stuff you must have done of of people uh, understandably but misguidedly believing that because Prince Harry launched this the other week that it would be it would give the World Cup a huge boost. I didn't read a word about any detail of the World Cup, the teams, the players, the games, the timing, but I read about a lot, a lot about him and his family soap opera because that's really what it was on the back of. And I think the yeah. B moving to Salford, people thought we're going to be in the heartland of it's just not made any difference because there's no connection between the two things and yeah, they don't the other, thing that, the, the other thing that you alluded to as well is the the economic conditions in the areas where rugby absolutely but the past 25 years have seen a, 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 an acceleration of deindustrialization zero hour contracts and so the 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 poverty that you see in 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 most of the northern towns where where the game's played is far beyond what anybody could have expected um, 25 years ago. So, and that's got there's, worse. There's objective, yeah, there's objective problems that the, the game's not the, able to do very much about. I couldn't agree more, and I think it's something that perhaps we talk about a future t- a date, but I don't think it's ever really been discussed as much as it should be, that, that no matter how slick your marketing and how good your broadcast deal is, and how flashy the kit looks, and how much the pre-match entertainment is dazzling. If it's in a place that's just poor, uh, with uh, a weak local economy, high levels of insecure employment, etc., 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 how are you going to change that? Because the problem with, I suppose the problem with all modern sport is, and I think Morris made a reference to it in one of his famous press releases, we've got to be more adept, quote, at chasing the dollar. But if there aren't any dollars around to chase, what are you going to do? Yeah. They can. I mean, to me, one of the biggest changes in in this in this period, you made reference to rugby union. Is you think of a club like Wasps, Tony, that played in North London for probably I don't know when they were founded, sometime in the last third of the nineteenth century, and they could just move to the Rico Arena in Coventry. No probs. Yeah. And actually, they've got they're getting bigger crowds than they ever got in in. Um, in, in Wembley, I think it was in Wembley that they played. In fact, we used to have some amateur rugby league matches on the Wasp ground back in the 80s, some of the cup finals. They could do that, and it's become a portable brand. I think that's a very profound change. You can't imagine that happening, despite some, I think, rather silly ideas about clubs, you know, moving their location because their license could move from, you know, I don't know, Wigan to... Chelmsford or something, I mean, it's pretty absurd. It just wouldn't work. But why wouldn't it work? Why does it work in one sport and not in another? And I think that the answers to those questions, or reflecting on those questions, gives us a lot of more purposeful ways of thinking about how we strengthen what we've got and build on our very firm foundations, rather than sometimes thinking we can just accelerate into a different 
sphere in British sport because that's an illusion. I don't I don't think yeah. it's as big a problem as some people think. I think we've got great strengths that we don't reinforce sufficiently, in other words, and kind of have wasted some resources on one or two things that, you know, didn't work when ne- people like me and you, I think, with, and lots of others would think would never have worked, but for which no one ever seems to suffer a penalty. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a very, I think, a very simple example in the history of Super League, which was a car crash, was the whole licensing fiasco. Yeah. In, no, have you ever heard much kind of analysis or comment on it? Clubs like Witness Vikings, uh, now lingering where they are, having gone through a second massive crisis recently. Sponsors gone, the owners gone, they're, they're on a tiny budget, they've had to go part-time, etc. You think of Witness in our lives as rugby league, one of the great clubs, foundation club of the Northern Union, but they didn't get a license in from 2009 to 20, what was it, 2012? It was given to Celtic Crusaders because their promotion as part of the the wrong-headed attitude to expansion and what expansion really means was going to triumph over giving an established club with a great ground and a decent supporter base a license. And Steve O'Connor, who was, as you know, the, the, the chairman and main investor for many years, genuinely millions of pounds of his own money, once told me that that period where they were out of the top flight and lingering elsewhere brought massive disillusionment in the town and half a generation of young people started to watch Liverpool and Everton. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think this is a dreadful outcome. Yeah, and I think it's a lack of... um, It's a strange thing because it's... Oddly enough, it's a lack of appreciation of rugby league culture, what makes the game tick. Yes. And also... uh, you know, connected to that to some extent is the fact that there was never any balance sheet of the Celtic Crusaders experience anyway. So no. we don't know. But it was expansion. What did wrong? What did right? And yeah, people, and people were of... using were using that as the ultimate benchmark because the game has had, as you and I discussed before, and it is a very interesting, hugely interesting topic. I think is the constant desire to move out of the geography that essentially we've been in, broadly speaking, since 1895. And the, the valiant attempts and the many attempts uh, and how that became that went from being an aspiration to being a sort of corporate objective of the leadership of the game. And that changes it because that means they've got resources to put into things rather than just warm words. And given that we've got rather limited resources, you have to use those very, very carefully. And I think we wasted significant resources, uh, cash and emotional resources, if you see what I mean, um, um, on things like licensing. I mean, that didn't work. And sorry, I know we don't have time to explore all of these today, but you think of the consequences to one of the really big innovations, the salary cap, which was going to prevent clubs from going bust, wasn't it? That was the original motivation. Yeah. Uh, Has anyone talked about Bradford Bulls recently? No. Yeah, so the salary cap was brought in to, to basically protect clubs from themselves. Yes. They didn't work. And at the same time to increase uh, competitiveness amongst yes. the top teams and spread out awards. Well, How again, many teams have won the grand final since it was instituted? In 25 years, four, four. teams have won it. Four you know teams. how many teams won the, the old championship, the equivalent of the grand final, in the 25 years before? <laughs> Super Got, uh, let me guess, um, 12. Almost, 13. 13. And the, the a... end of that run was, was dominated by Wigan's eight. Um, How many teams won the NRL Grand Final in the same period? 
in the period, yeah. sorry, since Super League started, we've had four winners, one of whom no longer exists as a first-class club. That's Bradford Bulls. Um, well, sorry, I don't mean it's some sort of... I thought my guess at 12 was very good, actually. And it is 12. It's yeah. 12 have won the NRL Grand Final in the same period. Right. Yeah, so exactly. And I, so think, that's, the, and I think that, again, there's, there's a kind of... It's this um, inability to draw conclusions and... Uh, uh, draw balance sheets. That yes, really, and look, if you at, look the, at the criteria. You can go and see it on the RFL's website. Why do we have a salary cap to protect clubs <clears throat> to maintain competitive balance? Well, it's not worked. It's on failed. Our... But why yeah. hasn't that produced a discussion then, like the one we're having, where you, as you say, you present the balance sheet, you present some objective evidence, and you say some of the most successful, one of the most successful clubs. In the in the last twenty five years, effectively has gone. I think it went into administration in 2012, 2013 or fourteen, twenty sixteen. It's now yeah. going to be playing at crap. Bradford Bull, didn't they? Didn't Bradford in the pomp represent Tony a really very significant slice of the active supporter base of the game? About 13 percent of it, I think. It's just gone. Oh, yeah. But not only has that gone, uh, the one of the consequences. One of the other strategic bits of this puzzle that's not discussed is that we went to the grand final system, the playoff grand final system, which is now the big, I think, the big game in October at Old Trafford. One of the consequences of that is the Challenge Cup has lost a great deal of its luster. It's a much reduced competition. That used to be the Blue Ribbon thing, the big day out at Wembley. And how do you balance those two things? Um, it, it's... Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think that's, again, it's kind of you've got to look at the, the overall strategy of these big games because, I mean, I've argued this before, that it's the Magic Weekend simply cannibalises the, Absolutely. the Challenge Cup weekend. The Challenge Cup used to be, well, going to Wembley used to be the, the carnival of rugby league. Everybody had their, their own club shirts. You could make people wonderful. from every club. Absolutely. Um, and, that's, uh, and now it's become, it's still got an element of that, but it's become more of a private affair between the two clubs competing. And that type of carnival, carnival atmosphere is uh, the magic weekend. And but again, look at, so look at, look at the relative the crowds of... at both, Tony. Look well, at what yeah. the crowds we used to get for Challenge Cup finals uh, in the great games in the 90s, even the early noughties. I mean, my first trip to Wembley was 66 to watch Saints and Wigan. I think the crowd was 99,000. Well, yeah, um, interesting enough. If you put, I, I think if you add together last year's Wembley attendance and the magic weekend attendance, it, it probably comes to somewhere around 99,000. It does. I've done, I've done that number as well. But but on top of that, um, that that, that we, so so in this twenty five years, we've tried really very significant structural things like salary cap, like licensing. These are not trivial endeavours. These got to the very heart of the sport. But we then, I think, came a bit addicted to some really quite silly gimmicks that. Uh, people thought were innovative and imaginative, and they didn't alter the basics. I mean, do you remember such wonderful ideas as Club Call? Now been quietly yeah. dropped. Remember the concept? They always call the concept the Exiles. Bunch of Aussie and Kiwi pensioners who unfortunately had a habit of beating England in these internationals, even though they only met for two days over a barbecue, because yeah, I know. We, we'd yeah, not got a deal with the Aussies on internet. So our international games yeah. became those comic events with. 6,000 people at the, the, the Gal Farm or whatever it's called in Huddersfield now. I went to one of them. It was genuinely embarrassing. Um, on the road. I think that's been dropped too. And, and yeah. they're to and me again, symptomatic. Sorry, go on. 
sorry, I was just going to say, symptomatic of a leadership that cannot think strategically. Don't know why. Well, I think it's it's a, it's a question. Yeah, it's it's a question. It's a it's a question of actually drawing some conclusions and learning the lessons of these things. That um, you know. So why did the exiles fail? What were the alternatives? Uh, what was the idea? What were the you know what were the aims of the on the road program in the in yes. the two thousands? Uh, did it meet? You know, did did the project meet its aims? If not, why not? All these type of ABC things. Um, the game doesn't do um, partly because it, obviously it's it's like all professional sport. It's a hand to mouth existence, so you move on to the next thing. But um, you know, we're not in a situation. We're not. Um, we're not like soccer where money's just pouring out of our ears. No, we can't afford like to make those mistakes. Yeah, that's right. It's not like rugby union where there's you know it's got significant uh, business and establishment links. So every time rugby league uh, takes a chance on something, it's it means that it has to not do something else, and it takes a risk. And I think you know, uh, uh, as anybody who's ever spent any time uh, working in the wider world knows, risk assessment is uh, one of the first things you carry out before you um, you undertake a project. And so and I think that, you... that's been that's been an issue for the game. Yeah. And if you think about that very simple, well-established procedure of risk assessment, let's just weigh up what we're going to do. Can we afford it? What will the benefits be? How will we measure it? Who will implement it? When can we call a halt on it if we think it's a car crash? Clearly, just they're not done. I mean, they're not done. And it's amazing when you think that this is the same group of people leading the sport who actually want to get to the top table. That 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 yeah. image that we will – because we don't have, seem to have – the sinews of ability, as it were, to do that. And there is no, no one's ever called to account. I think that's a major, major point about this. When when Saracens uh, were found to have done what they proved to have, proven to have been done, and, the, and and it was other clubs, Tony, that, that, that really pushed whatever their central authority is on their management of the salary cap, the, of their suspicions, a few more leaks came out, probably some loose talk involved, et cetera. Look at, yeah. look at the action that they took. I mean, I mean, they're in the second division. The chairman's had to resign. The clubs, it, it's you, you. They can afford to make mistakes in a way that we can. Imagine that that was Wigan or Leeds that happened to in rugby league. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be a catastrophe for them. It won't be. In fact, they're talking already in that very smooth manner they've got of managing the way they manage their risk. And as you say, they have huge advantages that are social and cultural over us to so given the way society works, the sort of, you know, the power networks that rugby unions plugged into that their coach is now talking about how actually it's not a bad idea because some of these lads could have a, a, a less taxing season in the second division in preparation for a lion's tour. Well, that's that's either the height of sophistry or it's genius. I'm not sure which. Well, that's, yeah, they probably just say so think, they'll, they'll be planning for that already, won't they? Yeah. Oh, they will be. I don't think anyone would say that if our best players from one of those two clubs had to play in the championship. So actually, it's brilliant. It's a wonder. I mean, we have um, uh, so many of these issues to talk about because this idea of a balance sheet, your image, I think it's just such a very good one because it makes it it's a dispassionate assessment. Sponsorship is another thing that uh, we were, I think, forecasting tremendous burst through of an alignment between rugby league and the kind of big, valuable, cash-rich brands that support other sports. 
and we got to the nadir do you remember i forget what year was it was it 2012 2013 we couldn't get a sponsor for the super league competition didn't have one yeah still bart dropped out yeah. before i think engage came back in and then and now it's betfred um, and that was yeah. well into the history of the game that's at the height of licensing the salary cap uh, the Sky Broadcasting deal, et cetera, we couldn't get a sponsor for our flagship competition. And I think that was another one of those remarkable chapters in the history of Super that was hardly ever discussed, really, in any, any way. I mean, I think if that happened to another sport, a comparable sport, and one with the ambitions that we've got for expansion and growth, that would provoke some very serious soul-searching. But it didn't. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm, I'm conscious that we're, we're running out of time on this one. Uh, so I'm going to end with um, what I think is, is a massive positive <clears> out, <throat> of super, uh, out of Super League. And, uh, and I, I know there's plenty of people within rugby league who disagree with this, but I think that's a switch to summer. I do. I, I think um, w- when it was initially proposed, I thought, well, is it going to make any difference? But I remember oh, maybe 15... Uh, 16 years ago, uh, one warm July evening on a Saturday night, standing at Headingley, watching a match, and I thought, this is what rugby league should always be about. And I think the move to summer, okay, maybe it starts too early, maybe it ends too late, and but that's we're dealing with the British climate here after all. Yes, of course. But I think the yeah. move to summer actually is, um, it's still potentially transformative for the game. I don't think we've made enough of it enough of that uh, about what it can do to to bring audiences to bring people in because um you know when you get a decent summer when you get warm weather it's fantastic. just fantastic and it suits it suits an open athletic game like rugby league but so That's i right, agree with you on that and i don't want game. and i don't want to end on on you know a miserable note everything i think we've talked about are legitimate questions that that have no ill motive why have these things happened because we can't afford for them to happen again but there's one other tremendous achievement uh, that we've that we've um, reached in the Super League era. That is the admission of Catalan Dragons. Yes, I think absolutely. that was the other major major triumph, which has, I think, given a lot of life to the game in France, which is to me hugely important. That's our that that's you know the other European centre of yeah. rugby league, particularly in Could the Catalan region. But the admission of the Dragons and the fact they're stabilised that they get crowds of where would they be? Tony? They'd be in the top third, I think. Of best supporting yeah, club I, by, I, in terms of maybe, home I think attendance. Last season they averaged they averaged over ten thousand. I think last season. Phenomenal achievement. Um, they've 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 brought on a lot of local players. They've managed to integrate themselves into the competition, and that would have been unthinkable. That's and of course it was the first time a club from outside the UK participated in a first class sporting competition in the UK. So a lot of historical first there. But I think you're right. Summer and the Dragons. And, of course, Summer at the Dragons is a particular pleasure. It's just sometimes you think, gosh, we could really do this if we thought things through a bit more carefully and assess the opportunities more soberly and then had a plan yeah, that we stuck to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Summer and Catalan Dragons are the two biggest things that happened. And as you say, they point the way to a possible different future as well, I think. If, if absolutely. If they're understood and, and built upon. So. Yeah. So yeah, so we'll 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 catch up again, and we'll uh, talk about some of the some of the stuff we've discussed in more depth, and we'll talk about some some other issues very very shortly. But in the meantime, I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony, and I think you're still not on Twitter, are you, Sean? 
No, I don't think it'd be a good idea. Actually. No. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can rummage through the complete archive of all the past episodes of this podcast. So until next week, thanks for listening.